Finally, welcome to Beijing. At 8 p.m. on the eighth day of the eighth month of 2008, the world's eyes were on Beijing. Beijing, you are host to the present and the gateway to the future. One and a half billion people tuned in to watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics in the iconic Bird's Nest Stadium. It's still one of the most-watched TV broadcasts in history. And the man running the show on behalf of the Chinese government—that was Xi Jinping. This is him at the torch relay. Welcoming the world. Xi had been promoted to the Politburo Standing Committee, the party's highest decision-making body, and made vice president. Shortly afterwards, he was put in charge of the final preparations for the games. There's a photo of him playing soccer in one of the Olympic venues with a squad of Chinese government officials, all dressed in their standard kit: a button-down white shirt and black suit trousers. Xi is out in front, enthusiastically kicking a ball. And I remember feeling excited too. I was there working as a tour guide for one of the official sponsors. I took time off from university in Australia, and I kept a journal. In most of the entries, I just sound like an annoyingly earnest 19-year-old jotting down notes about my favourite colleagues and worrying about skipping a whole month of classes to work at the games. Here they come down the track. But I was really glad I was there. I write about taking VIP guests to watch Usain Bolt break the world record in the 100-meter sprint and spotting foreign celebrities in the Olympic Park: Roger Federer, Sean Connery, and Tony Blair, to name a few. I rode Beijing's sleek new air-conditioned subway trains, a break from a hot and sticky summer. And I scribbled notes for assignments I was supposed to be writing. I commented that China flourished when it was open in the past, and also now. Tens of thousands of Chinese students studying in America are returning home because it's the land of opportunity. I wrote. The Olympics were billed as China's coming out party. It was an optimistic moment for liberals everywhere. America was on the brink of electing its first black president. The European Union was still expanding. The Iraq War was winding down. That optimism extended to the view of China. Predictions that it would become more open and perhaps even one day democratic became louder and more confident. Many Chinese, both in China and around the world, felt incredibly proud about the moment they were witnessing. But beneath the excitement was an undercurrent of fear. Xi relied on the military and the whole of China's security apparatus to make sure the games went off without a hitch, but also to prevent protests from embarrassing the party. By this point, Xi Jinping was widely expected to become China's next leader. Would he continue to make China less restrictive, more free? Was the optimistic atmosphere at the Bird's Nest Stadium a sign of things to come? I'm Sulin Wong from The Economist. This is The Prince, a podcast about China's leader Xi Jinping. Episode three, Patriot Number One. Beneath the spectacle of the Olympics, the Communist Party was facing a growing crisis, one that threatened not just Xi Jinping's path to power, but the very stability of China. 
what kind of country would C take over? So our village has our village is huge, with mountains, the sea, a big harbor, and low-lying fields. Zhuang Liehong was born in Wuhan, in a small house with dirt floors. It's not far from Hong Kong, in the province of Guangdong. Wuhan village has always been poor. Most people fish on small boats that they keep in the bay, or farm the open plain between the village and the next town. When I was little, I'd run around with a group of friends, stealing sweet potatoes and grilling them. They tasted different from the ones at home. Lie Hong's rebellious streak would get him into a lot of trouble. In the 1990s, party officials started selling off village land to developers. The money they made didn't always go to the right place. They were corrupt. Many officials were pocketing the money, keeping what was ours for themselves. When ordinary people went to them for anything, they would only help you if they were bribed. How much money would you have to give them? It depended on what it was. A small thing like getting an ID card, we used to have to give them two packs of cigarettes. Anything that should be part of their job, they'd want a bribe. Why should we be at their mercy? They were taking what was ours without our knowledge. Lie Hong decided to do something about it. So I came up with this idea of doing something for my hometown. And that grew into Patriot Number One. Patriot Number One was Lie Hong's pen name. One night in April 2009, he wrote a letter to everyone in his village. He signed it Patriot Number One. The name is important. Because I feel my actions are patriotic. He drove around the streets in the dark with hundreds of copies. He scattered them in doorways and village squares, at the temple and the police station. We are not the slaves of a conquered village, the letter began. Over 10,000 mu of our land has gone missing. That's more than one and a half thousand acres. Corruption had become a huge national issue. Almost every village, town and city had stories like Ulkan's. By the end of the next day, hundreds had joined a group Lie Hong created on social media. They decided they'd take a petition to the government in the provincial capital, Guangzhou. I did everything according to China's policies. We were not violent citizens that the government later took us to be. We did everything according to the law. Officials from Wuhan tried to stop the petition from reaching their superiors in Guangzhou. They physically blocked the entrance to the building. But Zhuang Liehong and a small number of other villagers kept going back every few months. They persisted for two years. But the government ignored them. 
So in late 2011, Lie Hong and his fellow petitioners decided they needed to do something bigger and braver. A group of them started planning a protest march. They were risking everything, and they knew it. Actually, standing up takes a lot of courage, because as everyone knows, the government will shoot the bird that pokes its head out. If we stand out, they will go for us. The protest leaders hoped a few hundred villagers might show up. But once they gathered in the village square, people started pouring in. Lie Hong was overwhelmed. By the time they set off on their march, there were almost 3,000 of them. Down with corruption. Give us back our land, they chanted. The local officials denied everything and told them if they didn't like the new developments, they should smash them up. So they did. They vandalised several properties and overturned police cars. We knew what the price would be. In the end, we still chose to take a stand. Because we had to take matters into our own hands. Of course, everyone later saw the price we paid. Everyone saw because local and international journalists flocked to cover the protest in Wuhan. To this day, they're a symbol of that time, of the hundreds of thousands of other protests that were happening all over China. Party officials across the country behaved just like those in Wuhan, appropriating and selling land that villagers considered their own and pocketing the money. And in every province, people were demanding more pay, less pollution and an end to forced evictions. One man killed himself in a bomb attack on government buildings in a city in southern China. People started wondering about the Communist Party's grip on the country. There was a popular saying at the time, Government orders don't leave the gates of Zhongnanhai, the compound in Beijing where China's leaders live and work. It pokes fun at how powerless they'd become because of infighting and corruption. A former US government staffer working on China at the time told me his Chinese counterparts would openly admit that corruption couldn't carry on in this way. They seemed shocked by it, but the rot went to the top. That's how the system works. I'm not doing any different from any other entrepreneur. Desmond Shum is a Chinese tycoon, one of the few to speak openly about how common corruption had become at the highest echelons of Chinese politics. He lives in the UK now. When we met, it was Chinese New Year, and he was dressed head to toe in different shades of red. Every entrepreneur in China needs access to political power to operate their business. If you're running a you know, newsstand on the corner, you're sharing wealth with the, the cup on the beat. I'm building the fanciest hotel in Beijing, the biggest airport in China. I'm sharing my wealth with the premier's family. I'm not doing anything different. I'm just working in the system the system assigned it to me. Desmond worked with his wife, Whitney, and they were ambitious. Whitney cultivated a relationship with the wife of the then Premier of China, Wen Jiabao. They called her Auntie Zhang. But to operate a business in China, you know, she's just one figure. With her backing doesn't mean you sell through the system. Desmond and Whitney hosted carefully choreographed feasts for party officials. Very often we have three banquets in one night, right? Essentially we have three different rooms, 
very close to each other, maybe in the same venue. We, we, we go into, so we start the first dinner at 5.30. And then you have a 7 o'clock dinner start. And then you have a 9 onward. And then even on that scheduling, there is a ranking to it, so to speak. The 5.30 one is the less important one. Because usually the Chinese uh, dinner starts at 6.30. The sums of money thrown around at these dinners were astronomical. Desmond liked to serve sea bass at $500 a pop and a $1,000 soup made out of fish maw, the swim bladder of a fish. The wine bill alone could be $100,000. Every person with authority within the bureaucratic system wants to get something for themselves. So you need to get over all these hurdles. And in every one of those hurdles, they want something. This system of buying access to power was illegal, of course. In the 2000s, when Desmond was doing business, the law often wasn't enforced because so many officials were getting so rich. Even after the crackdown on Lai Chung Sing and his red mansion in the late 90s, corruption didn't go away. It grew along with China's economy, from simple bribery and extortion to insider trading and stealing public resources like land. If you're in the government, you kind of need to gather some assets for your family because all the peasants are getting rich, the smart peasants that are starting businesses, and you're from the party elite. Jim McGregor was the consultant for foreign businesses trying to break into the Chinese market. He lived in China for 30 years, starting in the early 90s. We China watchers would call people like him an old China hand. He saw how corruption evolved under different Chinese leaders, from Zhu Rongji and Jiang Zemin in the 90s to Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao in the 2000s. Under Zhu Rongji and Jiang Zemin, corruption was don't ask, don't tell. But under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, it was all bets are off. They were very weak leaders, so it just became ridiculous. Desmond Shum and his wife got rich, and so did the officials they dealt with. But the party wasn't focused on corruption. It cared about growth. As long as party officials managed to develop their local economy, they could expect promotions. If they kept a little for themselves, well, that was just the cost of doing business. In Ukan village, it was very clear to Zhuang Hong how the system worked. Everything's connected. Higher-ranking officials rely on lower-ranking officials to find a way to get their hands on money, which they, in turn, use to bribe their superiors. The officials protect each other. The municipal government, county government, village government, They were all in it together. It's a system that was replicated across China. There were more and more villagers like Zhong Liahong who were starting to organise against the corruption. Excitable commentators started referring to this period as the Ulkan Spring. There were real fears that these protests could coalesce into something larger. After all, it was 2011. The world had watched angry crowds in the Middle East topple corrupt and repressive dictators in what became known as the Arab Spring. Could something similar happen in China? The Communist Party and Xi Jinping certainly thought so. More on that in a moment.
I'm pausing the story for a brief moment to remind you that if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. I work with the best China correspondents in the business. Every week, they write about all kinds of fascinating China stories, often in very difficult circumstances. To read their coverage, and so much more, you'll need a subscription to The Economist. It's really easy to sign up. Visit economist.com slash chinapod for our best offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Now, on with the story. What were the leader-in-waiting's concerns amid all these protests? Xi Jinping was standing on the precipice of a daunting new challenge, a new set of responsibilities. He was thinking hard about what he needed to do, what he wanted to do. Danny Russell worked in the White House back then. He travelled to China in 2011 with the then vice president, Joe Biden. Xi Jinping was China's vice president, and Biden's job was to get to know him. He got a chance on the last night of the trip. It was very small, very intimate. Maybe there were four people on each side, plus the interpreter. Danny was there too when they shared a relaxed dinner. The two men by that point had spent quite a bit of time together, had worked through their agenda issues and checklists of questions, and they had time to just talk. And I thought it was quite revealing. It was a rare moment when they could speak freely. I remember thinking, this guy has nobody to talk to, (laughs) you know, he has no peers. So this dinner with Joe Biden presented an opportunity. Xi Jinping talked at some considerable length about the Arab Spring. It was clear that that was very much on his mind. He was thinking hard about how to avoid the fate of regimes in the Middle East. There were these one-party systems that had been overthrown, that had fallen, and Here was Xi Jinping really trying to sort of unpack what had gone wrong and what the lessons were for China, for the Chinese Communist Party. Now, human beings have a tendency to find the lessons that they're looking for in history, but the lesson that Xi Jinping said he was taking away from these developments was that corruption was a huge threat to a party that was in power for a sustained period of time. And he saw other parallels too. Losing control of the narrative and losing touch with the people themselves. These were the sorts of things that precipitated the Arab Spring that could indeed bring down the Chinese Communist Party if the party didn't get its act together. It might seem hard to imagine that now, but at the time, the Communist Party's control of the country seemed to be wavering. It wasn't just protests, which also flared up on China's periphery in regions that the Uyghurs and Tibetans call home. And the symptoms of corruption were playing out across the country. Like in Sichuan in 2008, when almost 90,000 people were killed in an earthquake, parents who lost their children blamed corruption. They said poorly built schools collapsed. Local government officials and construction companies had cut corners and pocketed the money left over. That same year, a baby milk powder company colluded with government officials to cover up a poison batch ahead of the Olympics. 
thousands of children still live with learning difficulties after drinking that milk as babies. So as Xi Jinping was looking ahead to his new role, he had to figure out how to deal with the fact that local officials were increasingly focused on getting rich rather than doing their jobs. And he was very forthright about his conviction that history and culture all conspired to make China particularly vulnerable to disorder, that there was a sort of centripetal force within that would simply break apart the country, absent the strong hand of the party, the leadership of the party, and that there were an abundance of external forces that similarly would gleefully pick China apart, absent a loyal defender of the motherland, a powerful protector of the national interest. Xi Jinping was at the heart of the party's machine at this time. As well as being vice president, between 2007 and 2012, he had another more opaque and technocratic sounding title. First secretary of the secretariat. It was actually more important than being vice president. He was in charge of managing all the day-to-day operations of the party's bureaucracy. A bit like being White House chief of staff in America. He learned how to get things done, saw where the problems were, and most importantly, who was pulling the strings. When he was musing about the Communist Party's vulnerabilities with Joe Biden and Danny Russell, it was because he was seeing the problems firsthand. Then in early 2012, a drama worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster erupted at the most elite level of Chinese politics and threatened to tear the party apart. All because of one man, a bold contender for the leadership. Well, it was unlike any story I'd covered before in China and probably anywhere in the world. Jeremy Page is a colleague at The Economist. He's now Asia diplomatic editor. Back in 2012, he was a Beijing correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. The Boshilai scandal was extraordinary, primarily because Chinese elite politics is such a black box. Boshilai was a Chinese Communist Party official. He's close in age to Xi Jinping and is also from a prominent revolutionary family. They had similar childhood experiences of privilege and hardship. They were both fiercely patriotic, loyal to the party and ambitious. But unlike Xi Jinping, Boshilai wore his ambition on his sleeve. And he was charismatic. He was funny, and he really seemed to enjoy speaking publicly, engaging with people. He just had this natural gift for doing politics in the Western sense. And he used that gift of politics to try to advance his career. He wanted to reach the very top. He was a populist. Uh, He introduced a lot of policies that were in many ways designed to make him more popular, to promote his standing within the party and thus his own leadership ambitions. He understood that he could appeal uh, directly to a relatively large number of people who felt they hadn't really benefited enough from the reform era. And one of the ways he did this was by reviving a lot of the rhetoric, imagery, and even the music of the Mao era. 
which for many people represented a time when Chinese society was simpler, fairer, yes, poorer, uh, but less corrupt than it had become over the last few decades. And he was so popular that his supporters would write songs about him. But all of this had the opposite effect among those at the top of the party. They saw him as someone who was arrogant, extremely ambitious, and dangerous because he was blatantly promoting himself and his own ambitions, largely at their expense. When Bo Lai arrived in the sprawling Chinese city of Chongqing in 2007, the place was teeming with problems. Pollution was terrible, and organised crime and corruption were rife. Bo launched a campaign to clean things up, led by Wang Lijun, a famously tough police chief. The clean-up was very popular with the public, but they would soon learn that Bo was hiding his own dirty dealings. In 2012, Wang became fearful that Bo would come after him and fled to the American consulate in a neighbouring province. Jeremy got scoop after scoop. At one point, he found out what Wang Lijun told the Americans. The most explosive of the allegations that he made was that he had information that Bo Xilai's wife might have been involved in the murder of a British businessman in Chongqing the year before. Some weeks ago, with controversy growing over the nature of Mr. Hayward's death, the foreign ministry here in London asked the Chinese to reopen its investigation. The Chinese have now done so. With each passing day, more details are emerging of Hayward's business and personal links to one of China's most powerful families and how it all went terribly wrong. Bosilai's wife, Gu Kai Lai, had poisoned a British businessman. Neil Hayward had worked with Gu Kai Lai for many years, helping her with family arrangements and business deals around the world. He knew a lot about the family and where their money was going. He told friends he'd fallen out with Gu Kai Lai. She claimed he'd threatened her and Bo's son. Haywood's family denies that. But what did all of this mean for Bo Si Lai? For two months, the party didn't give any clues. Then the premier, Wen Jiabao, spoke at a press conference. He told reporters that the current leaders of the Chongqing Party Committee must seriously reflect on the incident. This was bad news for Bo Lai. The next day, he was removed from his position as party secretary of Chongqing. Later that year, his wife was found guilty of murdering the businessman, Neil Haywood. Wang Lijun, the police chief, was convicted of treason for his attempted defection to America. Bo Lai was a pariah. It really crystallised this sense of crisis within the party leadership, which had been brewing for a while, particularly since the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, because up until that point, China had been on a path towards relative liberalisation, where the party had slowly been retreating from the economy and from society. And the Bushilai crisis really bolstered the voices calling for the party to be more involved in economic and social affairs. This was a moment of danger for the party. Bo's willingness to publicly campaign for himself at its expense threatened its control. 
And the dirty dealings that had culminated in the murder of Neil Haywood underscored how out of control the corruption had gotten, even at the very top. The consensus that emerged within the party elite was that China really needed a single strong leader who could stamp control over the whole party, root out corruption and abuse of power, and prevent people like Bo Xilai from sowing division within it. We don't know what role Xi Jinping had in Bo Xilai's downfall. Given that he was about to take over, it's hard to imagine he sat silently in the wings, especially since it ultimately played to his advantage. Although Xi Jinping didn't have a lot of close allies in the top party leadership when he took power, he had a much stronger hand over the next few years because Bo Xilai had been taken out of the picture. If Bo Xilai had been there in the Politburo Standing Committee, then there would have been this very powerful counterbalancing voice, a very charismatic and persuasive figure with his own network of allies. And that would have made it much harder for Xi Jinping to do what he wanted, to implement his own ideas, and also to get rid of people who were close to Bo Xilai. This was the point in 2012 when Xi Jinping disappeared for two weeks, in early September. Did it have something to do with the Borsi-Lai scandal? Was Xi's disappearance some kind of power play? At the end of that month, Borsi-Lai was charged with abuse of power and corruption and expelled from the party. <laughs> Xi Jinping was sworn in as General Secretary of the Communist Party in November. Less than a year later, Borsi-Lai would be sentenced to life in prison. Corruption had been so widespread that everybody had something going. Jim McGregor, the old China hand, says princelings like Bo had free reign under the previous administration. I think the leadership families just came to the conclusion, it's our right to rule. And so they were corrupt as hell, and they didn't even hide it anymore. But with Xi Jinping in charge, that was about to change. Before the protest in Ulkan reached its conclusion back in 2011, things took a turn for the worse. Zhuang Lehong was detained for 20 days, and a member of the village committee died in police custody. That sparked another protest. Locals set up barriers on the roads into Ulkan and blockaded themselves in. They smuggled foreign journalists through the barricades. Once again, the situation in Ulkan was becoming an embarrassment for local officials. The blockade lasted 10 days until one of the top party officials in the province came to negotiate. He made a surprise concession. The village would be allowed to hold elections and govern itself. In China, we call out government corruption because we truly love our country. And we hope things will improve. We hope that the Chinese people will be able to live in a society that is free and democratic. We want to have human rights so we can protect our society. We don't want to have to curry favor with government officials or be forced to be slaves. It seemed to be a victory for Zhuang Liahong and the protesters. But what would happen to them? in Xi Jinping's China. Who's your daddy in China? It's the Communist Party. Don't piss him off. That's next time.
The Prince is produced by Claire Reed, Sam Colbert, Barclay Bram and me. Our sound designer is Wei Dong Lin, with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer is John Shields. We couldn't have made this without the help of some very brave people we can't name. For more of The Economist's China coverage, get the best offer on a subscription at economist.com slash chinapod.